The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. I remember bursting into tears one morning when my alarm went off because of the thought of having to get up and face things. I didn't have any energy. You'd go to bed exhausted. You'd wake up in the morning even though you'd slept for 12 hours exhausted. I remember a particular week where it just got progressively worse. Tuesday was twice as bad as Monday, Wednesday was twice as bad as Tuesday. And I remember waking up on the Sunday of that week. And for the first time ever, I remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, I don't want to be alive anymore. Hello, I'm Kevin Poulter. And on today's podcast, we're talking to Lloyd Rees, knowledge lawyer at Freshfields, and his colleague, Christina Aidy-Davis, Global Diversity and Inclusion Senior Manager. We were talking about mental health. Uh, Lloyd was incredibly courageous a few years ago and wrote a blog about his own experiences. Obviously the reputation of the legal profession around mental health has not been great and has not been something that has been dealt with until really the recent years. From our conversation, I feel now reassured that there is change afoot. And not only is this coming from the junior lawyers, it's also coming, hopefully, from the top down. The hearing. Hello, welcome, and uh, to you, Lloyd Rees. Hello, Kevin. Knowledge lawyer. That's me. At Freshfields, da 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 da. Uh, you, can, you can go for the full title. Freshfields Brookhouse Daringer, Thank LLP. You. Thank you. Uh, and uh, Christina Ada Davis. You can get, you've got a, a huge job title as well. They I have. Job is a uh, I need to, <laughs> you do need to. Hello. Global Diversity and Inclusion Senior Manager. Also at Freshfields. Da, 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 da. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Thank you. We're not doing too much promotion today. Um, <laughs> but we're here to talk about mental health and, in particular, um, really, uh, to start with, your experience and your journey. Uh, is journey an overused word now? But uh, your, your yeah. journey, I feel like yeah. the next factor. Yeah. Uh, your journey we're to all on the journey, I think, uh, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> um, but start us off right at the beginning, because this is a this is an unusual accent for the podcast. Yeah, so I'm from South Wales, um, although I do joke to people sometimes that I didn't learn this accent at RADA. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I'm from South Wales. I grew up in a town called uh, Merthyr Tydfil, mm. um, which is in the South Wales Valleys. Um, was a sort of post-industrial town. Um, I uh, went to Cardiff University to study law, um, and then I came to Freshfields where I did my training um, and I've been ever since. So, my usual question at this stage mm. is, well, why the law? Uh, what, what was the background? Did you have family, uh, some experience? Mm. Was it purely from watching uh, uh, Ali McBeal? Well, it's interesting because I, you know, it was a, a town where times were tough and things were hard. It was not a particularly academic background and things. And I remember going to a careers um, consultation or something similar in a dark room in the school I was in <laughs> and um, and it was an amazing school I should say that I don't want people to think otherwise um, and it was basically if you were clever you either became a doctor or you became a lawyer and there was not much else discussion was had and I sort of didn't really like the idea of being splattered in blood and, <laughs> and all other manner of things so I thought this law thing sounded all right um, and I liked reading and I liked and I was good at English and, and things like that. Um, so I thought I'd give that a go. I remember all of those, you know, when you start reading about how expensive it is to yep. train as a lawyer. I mean, yep. I had nobody in my family and, uh, was a lawyer. My parents didn't go to university um, or anything. So the whole idea of even going to university was a bit of an, an alien concept. Mm. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm one of these sort of people who just thinks, let's just give it a go. 
and I thought, well, I'll apply and see whether I get in or not. Yeah. Um, and I did, so, and from there onwards, it sort of worked out all right, really. Uh, well, yeah, well, yes, it did. <laughs> um, uh, so tell me about uh, going to Coventry University as well, because mm. you stayed in Wales. Yeah, I did. Um, and was that, was that a conscious decision, or was that just... Well, it was a Chance. bit of both, really. I, I mean, I think I grew up in quite a close-knit community, and we had quite a close family, and still do. And I did originally plan on going to live in Cardiff, which I did for about five weeks. And then I, then I moved back home and started commuting in and oh, out really? to the university every day, which I then did uh, for the three years uh, that I was there. And to be honest with you, it was I got the best of both worlds, because I got the university life. And I also got my mother to do my washing and ironing, and she cooked my food for me and everything, which was fantastic. That's interesting. How long was the commute, just out of interest? Um, oh, about an hour and a half. Wow. So I used to have to get up at about six o'clock in the morning to get there for a nine o'clock lecture, um, which I didn't mind because I'm, I'm quite an avid reader. Um, so my bus journey to Cardiff would be when I would read my book. Yeah. And to be honest, I used to quite like that. Um, but it was... It was slightly different to some of my friends who were rolling out of bed at five to nine uh, to turn up for the nine o'clock yeah, lecture. Yeah, that sounds familiar. If they did, <laughs> um, but there was me on the stagecoach on the way down at <laughs> you know six a.m. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, it's not something that um, I felt like I missed out on anything in mm. university because of that. Mm. And um, Freshfields, why, yeah. why, 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 did, why, why there? Well, did again, you apply sort of broadly, or is it quite nice? I did search? it quite quite broadly. Um, to be honest with you, I didn't know any of these firms were when I was early on in university because I mean, it, th they don't do the sort of work that you would know about really in terms of um, the, the life I grew up with. Um, and I remember I went to a, the Cardiff Law Fair, which law students and people listening yeah. to this podcast will be familiar with, where everyone sets their stall out, <laughs> quite literally. <laughs> and um, they were just one of the firms that you meet on these sort of things. And um, in a weird way, you often see these rankings and tables of firms listed. And yeah. I don't know, I, um, when I look back now, maybe I was a bit naive and I just thought, well, I'll just apply to the, you know, the people who were all near the top and see what happens. Um, and I ended up doing a vacation scheme at another quite big law firm. Um, and then I got the training contract at Freshfields then uh, when I was in the end of my second year when wow. I was in Cardiff Law School. So I was quite lucky that I could go right through. Um, I basically didn't stop all the way through. So I was quite young mm. when I started in mm. Freshfields. What was I 22 when yeah. I started there? And then did move, presumably not commuting anymore. Yeah, I didn't. I moved to London <laughs> then to do the... Uh, accelerated LPC in 2012, July 2012, and it was quite an exciting time to do that because yeah, that was when the time. Olympics and everything was on, so it felt like the place to be. Um, so I think for me that helped my move to London actually because yeah. everyone sort of wanted to come and visit me because they all wanted to come and see <laughs> the Olympics and see what it was like and come and see the torch and everything. The problem being, of course, that Oh, so you're doing the LPC in 2012. Yeah, okay, yeah. so you, you so you, you did still have some time. Yeah, um, I did. So it's a six-month course, the accelerated version of the LPC, um, as was then when I did it. So it was from July to February I did that. Mm. And then, um, and that's probably, it was that some of the time when we started chatting, because we, you're a social media fiend. Yeah, um, yeah, for my sins. As, as, I, as I am <laughs> slash was, um, possibly more at the time. Yeah. But that's probably when we started I, occasionally having a yeah. chat and, and yeah. following each other. And, um, it's been interesting to see how, how obviously your careers mm. uh, developed mm. and progressed. But then um, I was probably a bit surprised 
a couple of years ago now yeah, yeah. when you you started talking really quite openly mm. about your mental health yeah and uh, I think possibly one of the first things was to publish a blog yeah that was the very first thing I did um, I sort of didn't trail that that was coming mm. um, because interestingly, yeah, as, as Kevin says, I, I do quite a bit of tweeting and things like that. And I sort of disappeared from that for a few months because I was off work and I was not well and I wasn't didn't want to engage in any of that stuff. Um, and yeah, when I one of the first things I did when I came back to all of that sort of social media stuff was publish this blog piece, mm. um, which I think took quite a lot of people who I talk to quite regularly in that as a bit of a surprise because there'd been this gap mm. and then suddenly there was this um, piece I'd written about what had happened to me. Yeah, and, and that was obviously a surprise for the people that know mm. you. Yeah. Um, and I think it was also a bit of a surprise for the profession generally because mm. I don't think this had really been spoken mm. about at all okay. uh, 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 then. Um, what was it that prompted you to, mm. to do that? And did you, did, was there a, a real consideration about it? Did you think about any impact that it might mm. have on you, obviously personally, but also yeah. professionally? Well, if I'm honest with you, the reason I did, the reason I actually committed what happened to me to writing was I used to go to these medical appointments and they'd say to you, how do you feel now versus how you felt six months ago? Mm. And I used to struggle to remember. How do you remember? Yeah. Because um, I, you know, I don't think most people keep a daily diary anymore of, you know, they write it before they go to bed. And one day when I was on the train back to Wales from one of these appointments, I thought, well, why don't I write down what has happened to me? Because when someone at one of these appointments inevitably says, do you feel better than when you did at the beginning of the year? At least I'll have something as a point of reference for mm. me. So I did it for that reason. And then it all came out in one journey from London to Cardiff on the train. And I thought, well, why don't I see if somebody would want to read it. So I actually sent it to one of my friends and said, what do you think of this? And they said, oh, I think this is really interesting. And we had quite a long conversation where they said, you know, it'd be very admirable if you put this out there, but are you sure you want to share quite this much information? Not from a, you'll compromise yourself, but actually like, you know, mm. this, a lot of this stuff is very private in your mm. life. Are you sure you want to do this? And I went to my mother and granny and family and they're often, you know, the last people who get the say on these things. and. I just decided to do it. Mm. Um, to be honest with you, I didn't have this sort of um, master plan of hoping it would have some impact or something. I just thought, well, if, if a couple of people read this and think it's useful, it's already written, it's done, um, then that must be a good thing. Um, mm. And I was quite surprised when the first one came out at quite the reaction it had. Mm. Um, because it was only after about two days after I published the first one that I then went back and did the research to see whether anyone had done this before. And yes, people mm. had talked about it, but you know, it had often been in sort of uh, interviews they'd done with people or articles other people had written, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, so you, which often the bulk of the text is not their own words and things. So um, I, was, I was actually quite surprised that there was not more of it um, when I looked back. So. Um, I think part of it was me trying to work out why people were so surprised that I'd done it. Um, so, yeah. It's, yeah, it, uh, again, um, incredibly admirable. But for those people that perhaps haven't read it or, or heard about mm. it, um, say you, 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 you go into some yeah. personal detail. Yeah. Um, but for those, like, fortunately, 
the majority of us, I think, mm. don't suffer with ill mm. mental health. Men mental ill health? Ill mental, what's the idea? Mental ill health. Yeah, mental, mental ill health. health. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that uh, they can't understand or appreciate yeah. it. And the, the, there's more publicity around it nowadays, there's more yeah. awareness. But I think it's difficult to understand. If, mm. if you're happy to just tell us like, what, yeah. how, how it impacted you. And I suppose when it started as well, if, if you can. Yeah, so for me, um, it started, interestingly, back to our I think the context we talked about earlier was, was, was quite useful for this. It was when I was in my late teens, I realized that something was not quite right for me. I used to have days where I'd lose all motivation for what I was doing, which is quite strange when you're someone who's normally incredibly highly motivated to do what you're doing. And the early signs of me were often like, I didn't wouldn't want to get out of bed in the morning, mm. um, which is very unlike me, because back to the getting up at 6 a.m. to go on the bus point. Yeah. Um, but so then I realized at some point when I was in university, I think this is not quite right. And we'd had some family history of people with depression and things. So I was, it was not quite a, as taboo a subject in our immediate family, which was very useful. Mm. Um, and I went to see a GP and they said, well, look, I think you've probably got some, some sort of depression or something like that. And I took some medication at that point and I went through the normal cycle of I went through that phase and got better and stopped taking it and that was that was fine. I actually did that sort of episode a couple of times yeah. after that um, and the episode I talk about which is in the three blogs is I'd been taking this was at the tail end of one of these episodes I'd been taking medication and they sort of don't want you to take it forever mm. um, and I'd been fine for about a year at the point when I went for an appointment where they said, look, you know, shall we think about you coming off this? Which I fully signed up to because I'd been um, fine up until that point. And they then said to me, look, you need to do this in quite a controlled way, which was something I didn't know about. You need to withdraw from this in a sort of, you take one every other day for two weeks, you take one every two days for a couple of weeks and mm. blah, blah, blah. Um, which I thought that's fine, you know, I'm an organized lawyer, I can note this in all my diary and everything of days I do this, that's fine, I drew myself a little calendar and things. Um, but within six or seven weeks of that, I was getting up in the morning, being sick every morning when I got up. Um, I was experiencing what I've subsequently learned is called brain zaps, which is like when you're getting a mini electric shock through your system and you wow. sort of shake a little bit. And that is a withdrawal symptom from some of the uh, antidepressant medication. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I genuinely, in the August of 2017, I thought I was really, really unwell with something else because I mm. was going through this. I was being sick all the time. I had these brain zaps. I couldn't concentrate. I was boiling hot. And actually, in, in a weird way, I remember getting more and more anxious about things because I thought there's something seriously wrong with me here. Because other mm. than the sort of depression, anxiety, I'm overall well. Mm. Um, so all of this physical stuff was something that is not something I was used to in any way, shape or form. Um, so I went to see my GP and, and you know, within seconds of me starting this story, he said, look, I, I, I can tell you what's happening. Your withdrawal symptoms from this stuff you're taking. It's basically your body becomes a bit reliant on this yep. stuff and yep. it's now craving what you've, you've stopped giving it which is remarkable, I mean, I knew nothing about any of this sort of mm. withdrawal symptoms mm. from medication beforehand. And you basically come to this weird juncture then where they say, look, you've got two options. 
you either carry on and sort of wean yourself off, mm. or you can go back to the full dose and we defer this decision for six months. Yeah. And I sort of thought, well, fine, I've invested six weeks in this thing. Let's see what happens. And actually, I did get better. The physical stuff stopped, mm. um, despite the hell that it was when it was ongoing. The physical stuff stopped. But almost within the day that the sort of physical stuff stopped, within a couple of days afterwards, the, the mental stuff came back, um, which was a week or so later. So this was September 2017. Mm. And it was worse than it had ever been before. So I'd be getting up in the morning really, like I remember bursting into tears one morning, like as when my alarm went off in the morning because of the thought of having to get up and face things was mm. devastating. I didn't have any energy. You'd go to bed exhausted. You'd wake up in the morning even though you'd slept for 12 hours, exhausted. Um, I'd become hyper anxious about things. And not even, definitely not work things. I remember being in a supermarket and basically spending quite a long time wandering around trying to decide what to eat mm. because I couldn't make my mind up as to what, you know, was I going to have chicken today or beef and, oh my God, maybe the, the beef is out of date. What if it's out of date? That'll make me sick. That'll make me unwell. That sort of constant vicious thought cycle going round and round. And uh, I thought, you know, goodness me, is have I gone through this withdrawal to only come back to where I started from? Yeah. And I sort of pushed myself on and on and on. Um, and at the beginning of October 2017, it all sort of came to a head one day, which is where the sort of blog piece starts, where I sort of break down in tears at work. And then I realised, you know, something is, something is going wrong here. And I went off and, you know, I went to see my treatment specialist and I went back on my treatment, went back to Wales because I thought this will help me with my recovery because yeah. I, you know, someone can look after me. Do the washing. Do the washing. <laughs> my mother can cook me the nice food. I can go out for a walk in the rain, not the sunshine. <laughs> and and um, I talked to my granny and everything and we thought, I thought I was getting better. Mm. I genuinely thought I was getting better and I went, I was off for about eight weeks and I came back just before Christmas um, to London, came back to work, and I thought, this is wonderful. You know, my th everything's back to as it was. Um, I then went off for Christmas, back to Wales, had a lovely time. Came back to London. There was something in January of 2018 where I was starting to, to think at the beginning, this is not right. First of all, thought it's the January blues that you always read mm. about at the beginning yep. of January. And I thought, oh, maybe this is just the... You know, you've done all the social stuff in December, January mm. is this quite miserable month that everyone's miserable, so it's not particularly helpful. And I remember a particular week in January where it just got progressively worse. It was sort of like Tuesday was twice as bad as Monday, Wednesday was twice as bad as Tuesday, and it was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I remember waking up on the Sunday of that week, and for the first time ever, I remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, I don't want to be alive anymore. Mm. And that is quite a remarkable state um, to get to. And to admit, that, to sort of even think that thought process is incredibly scary. Um, because I remember looking at myself thinking, you know, Jesus Christ, if it's got to this, this is bad. Yeah. It, this is really hard. And I remember sitting down thinking, well, what on earth do I do about this? And I, you know, you're not exactly in a logical state to think about this stuff, to mm. think through things. So that's the most difficult thing. And I remember ringing my mother and my granny 
to tell them about this. And the bit I should add, which I I can't even remember whether it's in this blog. So we've had my my mother's brother and so my granny's son uh, unfortunately committed suicide in the mid 2000s. So we've right. got immediate family experience mm -hmm. of this. Yeah. So for me to explain to them that this was now how I was feeling was, I think there was a massive thing of me telling them anyway. But for mm -hmm. there to for this was quite a raw thing for them. So mm -hmm. I appreciate how difficult that conversation was for them. And especially too. the distance between you as well at the time. I oh, guess. physical yeah. distance. Yeah, the physical. It was hard. It was not to sort of. It's not the sort of conversation you really want to have on the phone with no. someone. Because mm -hmm. um, I remember talking to my mother and granny, and I think they were sort of beside themselves that they were not here. Um, at that point um, and then I went luckily and this is you know sometimes life is a little bit about chance and luck I'd already had a GP's appointment scheduled for that Monday morning and you know sometimes the stars align in a weird way and I went there and I spoke to my um, GP and you know he said look this is really serious you need to go and see a proper consultant psychiatrist now about this because you've passed the threshold of what we can treat mm. here yeah um, and the terrifying thing was, he said to me that if, if I wasn't lucky enough to have um, private medical mm -hmm. insurance through my job, I would have been six months waiting for an appointment to see a consultant psychiatrist. Mm. Um, and that terrified me, that, that genuinely terrified me, the thought that I could have been in that state, mm. or maybe even not got there for six months, and I don't say that lightly. Mm. Um, and I managed to see a consultant the next day um, and the team that looked after me at the Nightingale Hospital were incredible. Mm. Um, I had different medication, different therapy, and honestly, I went from that stage mm. to about six weeks later, where I was then thinking about coming back to work in a phased return, which for me was an absolutely remarkable, you know, what they turned around in such a mm. short space of time was yeah. testament to their skill. Um, and I'm forever indebted to them for what they, they did with me there because not only did they stop the decline, as fast as they stopped the decline, they managed to improve it. And I think it's not just improve it, it's you make it sustainable that once it gets back there, it stays there. Yeah. Because a lot of this stuff, I think, is about getting you out of the immediate crisis. Mm -hmm. But sometimes there's not the sort of, well, how do we not dip back into that again? Which is the hard thing, I think, because... Obviously, when you run well, that's all you care about mm. is getting better. Mm. But actually, you need to put some of the legwork in to make sure that you you don't get quite as bad again in the future. Um, and luckily, that's what I benefited from with them, and they were amazing, mm. really, really amazing. Incredible. And like you say, there's a long period of decline, and then just yeah. quite a short period of recovery. Yeah, is it is remarkable. And I think you know where they got to with me was that they think that. I've got some sort of form of chemical depression, which is, mm. you know, for people who are not familiar with it, they think that how some people get depression is there's an imbalance of certain chemicals in your brain. And so mine is not sort of situationally driven around what's going on around me because, you know, the, the conclusion they've come to is that sort of as soon as I was coming off that medication, as soon as something was not helping keeping that balance slightly in check, that the scales tipped. Mm. And, you know, so as soon as I get the right sort of medication and the treatment, it improves pretty quickly afterwards. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's, I think, explains the long decline versus the once you've got the right thing, it actually yeah. improves in a relatively 
quick period. And, uh, and I, I suppose in some ways similar to physical mm. uh, impairments, yeah. ill, Ill health as well, that get the right treatment, get the right medication yeah. and you can see quick improvement. Yeah. But what's, as was what's difficult, and although you suffered um, mm. physical yeah. symptoms as yeah. well, yeah. Uh, what's difficult is for people to necessarily recognize those things. Mm. And yeah. particularly when you say that this is not necessarily situational, yeah. but the, 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 the chemical yeah. imbalance. Yeah. Is there, is there a way for you to recognize what those, uh, we talked before mm. we started uh, uh, today about like, sort of triggers, but yeah. I guess you don't necessarily see them, you just see Well, I see, I, yeah, I don't, see the, I don't see triggers as much. I see there's certain th behavioral traits in myself that I notice. So to give you an example, I'm someone, as Kevin will know from my tweets, I like eating and I like <laughs> going to the theater and things, right? which I really look forward to. But there then will be an occasion every now and again where I will think, I do not want to go. Yeah. And it'll be, I'm going with my best friends to this really nice steak restaurant and I'm going for a nice show afterwards. And I'll get up in the morning and think, I do not want to go. Mm. And that's not a, I can't be bothered today. It's a, I physically feel like I cannot go and do this today. Mm. And that is one of the most worrying signs for me is when I, when I know mm. there's things that I enjoy that I suddenly then don't want to do. And that's one of the things I notice. And also it's um, that the sort of anxiety and things, mm. the inability to make a decision. I'm one of these people who can do things and move on pretty quickly afterwards normally. But it's when I start obsessing about things. What if, what about? Yeah. Can I reread that? Can I look at that again? What if I've said this to my friend? Are you sure I haven't upset them by saying I can't do this? Um, why have they not replied to my message? Is it because they hate me? You know, that mm. sort of yeah. stuff mm. that normally you'd think, oh, well, they're all busy people. They're in meetings. <laughs> they're recording podcasts with other people. <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, don't, don't name and shame. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, but on days then mm. when I know those things are not quite right, I'll be overanalyzing. Yeah. that stuff and for me then that's the you know the light starts flashing a little bit as a bit of a warning you need to look after yourself here and that's uh, i'm sure some people will be familiar with that feeling like sort of on a monday morning in january where they don't really want to go to work yeah. not talking about going for a nice steak yeah. or, or yeah. theater we're talking about going to work yeah and that's probably a familiar feeling to mm. i would probably say the majority of people, mm. not exclusively mm. Freshfields employees yeah. um, <laughs> but, but that's probably something that people experience yeah it's it's how do you know when that is not just a, just the Monday blues? Um, mm. It's something beyond that. Particularly when we're talking about it being a work situation. And what I'm I'm an employment lawyer, so what I deal with on a regular mm. basis is dealing with HR directors, uh, people mm. owner, owners of businesses, and they will see certain. And we know this because it's always in the front page of the newspapers mm. that this is the world's biggest sick day and mm. people will call in sick this day because it's uh, like on an algorithm, this is the mm. day that people mm. have got to the end of their tether with the mm. new year or mm. coming back after Third week in September January. or whatever, yeah. Um, is, that, is that what it is? Okay, yeah, there's an official be, Blue Monday. There we go. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not Black Friday, it's the Blue Monday <laughs> we're talking mm. about. But a lot of people feel that. Mm. What is it that are those, because you've spoken to a lot of people about this now, not yeah. to say you personally, yeah. but um, what do you think uh, are generally those triggers that people do get, which is more than just being a little bit down? Well, I think, I mean, I think, I think the honest answer is it's different for everyone. And I think, if, if I'm being honest, I think it's for me and things I hear is when you do things that are out of character for you. 
um, because everyone's different, which I know sounds like a cliched thing, but you know what your established routine and how you operate are. And it's sort of when you suddenly are then not doing what you normally would or you don't feel like you normally would mm. in these situations. I mean, we all have occasions in our life quite regularly where there is justifiable reason for us not being on yep. this on the sort of uh, the balance that's there in the middle of how you feel. But, you know, if that persists and things mm. are not quite as you would have expected, because for me, that's what it was. I remember the mm. very first time this happened, I, I thought, well, you know, it's just because you've got an essay in or something, you know, when you're in university. And then it's when it persists beyond that. Okay. Mm. You know, I think it's to use your example about the Blue Monday thing mm. is, you know, is that persisting onwards? Mm. Yeah. And, you know, is that going on between February, March? Is 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 it happening at the weekends? Is mm. it happening at other times for um, other events? To get a clinical diagnosis, yeah. it's two weeks of persistence, which I mean, you might think sounds a small period of time, but if that's if persistent, that, yeah. that's a very long Oh, yeah, I mean, and two, and two weeks if you're feeling particularly bad is a very long time, yeah. actually. I mean, mm. interestingly, I've not thought about this, but there's not many, you know, sh short-term physical things where you need to say you need to present symptoms for two weeks to get the diagnosis for it, you know, because you, yeah. you would turn up and you would say, this is how I feel, and, mm. and you would often be diagnosed with a condition. Mm. Um, but yes, you're right, because often what they ask you is this, how the well. history of how you've been feeling, mm. which is back to the why I, I wrote down what happened. But I think that's a really good point as well and one of the challenges you mentioned around getting the right sort of diagnosis if you like so yeah. that you get the right treatment yeah. and very often it would be probably unusual if you did go to the doctor after two weeks around this whereas like you say if it was a physical yeah. health yeah. problem you'd probably be there fairly quickly. So oh I think that's right and I, and I think by the time you know, mm. at least in my experience and, and several of the people I've spoken to, by the time they've gone to see their GP, it's, it's much more than two weeks of this. Yeah. They've, Being it, they've gradually, gone through. It's, yeah. it's, it's off, and it's often more at a crisis point at which they do it because people weirdly, or because of the way society is, the threshold is seemingly in a different place for mental mm. health conditions to where it is for yeah. physical conditions. Well, you mentioned yeah. about recognising changes of personality in yourself, mm. and sometimes it's easier for other people to recognise yeah. it mm. in you. Yeah. And I, I guess this is where we start talking about uh, mental health first aiders. Yeah. And, and, well, we're talking about friends, family, yeah. colleagues as well, yeah. but yeah. but having people specifically who are trained to recognise these sorts of symptoms, and I know mm. this is something that you've, and a lot of law firms now actually, um, supporting and, and organisations generally, mm. but you've been doing this for a little while now, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we introduced this around 2017 actually, um, around the time when you were actually, yeah. but we met after you, yeah. you came back and you'd obviously been very open, yeah. so connected on that. So we piloted this. I mean, I worked in mental health and disability inclusion in sort of business collaborations and charities before coming to Freshfield. Right. So was very keen on introducing something like this mm -hmm. into the firm. So we piloted it and obviously it went pretty well. Um, and then we made a commitment to roll this out across the firm globally. Mm. Um, and the reason that this programme, if you like, is so good, um, because obviously a programme is one thing, and, and it, people probably know that you can't solve inclusion, mental health, well-being with one programme, but it's the ripple effect as well that's so, so key. But what it does is it trains you up to be much more confident in addressing these things, because when I'm delivering the training, as I, I'm trained up as an instructor, mm. um, 
a lot of the skills that you're drawing on to support people are skills we all have. Empathy, being able to listen. Mm. Um, what we probably don't have as much of is that knowledge around mental ill health. Yeah. Because if you think physical health, we've been talking about it for years. Yeah. You pick it up. You, you probably, see Yeah, you probably know what yeah. to say to someone if they've got a bit of a cold or the flu. Whereas this has been such a closed topic, there's such a catch up. Um, so you learn a lot of knowledge around it, but it's very clear that you're not to be diagnosing after these two days. But you need to have that knowledge to feel confident. And then the piece that's so important is listening non-judgmentally, mm. which sure you can say from your experience yeah. makes such a difference as to whether you can open up about mm. this um, and I think the, the the key with that is isn't it that you you try you can speak people can speak to a colleague or a friend um, who's done this training they can listen in a non-judgmental way and you know that they've got the tools that equip them for how to deal with this conversation yes they're not a psychiatrist they're not a doctor but they know the next few steps of how to help you. To support you Which, when, you, which yeah. when you're in one of these cycles, even someone saying, do you think you should go and see your GP? We can call or Bupa for you. you. So yeah, in the yeah, firm, yeah. obviously we're lucky, as we said, that we have um, direct routes. Um, but the other thing about this initiative, and I always explain this when you know people have been very supportive and really interested mm -hmm. in it, that it is it's bigger than um, just Freshfields. It's bigger than business. It's responsible because we all touch so many different communities, and you have people in the room yeah. that are volunteering, saying they're going to yeah. use it there, use it in their home life. And Mental Health First Aid England has a has a sort of aim of having one in twenty, sorry, one in ten trained in the community in mental health first aid skills. Can you imagine the impact if one in 10 of us? That's incredible. Yeah, that's their, their aim. And obviously we put in place this um, aim of one in 25, mm. um, which, uh, and we've made a commitment to this on World Mental Health Day last year, globally, so not just in one area of the That's firm. what I wanted to move on to, but yeah, yeah. Can you, sorry, you carry on first. <laughs> so- I'm uh, waiting for, I'm going to the drum roll. Which we have met, which is fantastic, and mm. not just in our London office, in our Manchester office, we've been looking at this across our global network. Um, we, the other thing to say is it's far beyond the numbers. So that point I was saying about you can't solve something with one program, but what this does, and I've been delivering it quite a lot over the last few weeks, um, and yesterday finished a course, but what it does is, you know, firstly people say, where have you been the last two days? So immediately within the course, people are coming yeah. back, they're having those conversations. Yeah. So it's starting to be woven into your everyday conversations, everyday practices, People go and do it in their meetings, talk about it, and yeah. you did a lot. Well, can I also you? say that it's something I think people are very proud of, because yeah. this was not in any way planned. But last night on Facebook, somebody who I work with, who Christina obviously trained yesterday, <laughs> put a Facebook status and said, I want to tell people that I've now qualified as a mental health first aider. Mm. And for me, it was one of, and they said it was one of the biggest achievements they mm. felt they'd had. And they'd made it one it's of their amazing. objectives this year to wow. do that. And you know they were telling this was not LinkedIn or Twitter. Yeah. You know this was them telling their immediate friends and family oh, about this, and I think that ripple goes wider than even just your colleagues. Yeah, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I want to pick up on the global point. Yes, and I know you you get to experience Freshfields on, on the global stage uh, with its various officers. But do you think that this is something which is especially problematic in the UK, in England, or do you think it's something which is actually now more and more common around the world? Yeah, and really good question. I think 
you know, everyone would agree in this area that this is a global problem. There can be the sort of um, misconceptions that certain societies or more developed countries are going to be experiencing more mental health than uh, less developed countries, sorry, or the other way around. But there's so many factors that are involved in well-being or mental health or mental ill health mm. that actually when you look at the stats across the globe, um, it, it you know, it's it's a challenging situation everywhere. Mm. <laughs> um, if you look, there's a lot on you know of research published by WHO, the World Health Organization, um, and overall, apparently, um, mental illness is not increasing. However, I think if you look at different pockets, you could probably that's debatable. But then the other side that's difficult in measuring that is also is it because we're talking about it more and it's been picked up more yeah. so it's, it's hard to differentiate i think what we all know is it's been underinvested in for years and, yeah. and mm. we really need to keep keep going on this yeah um uh, I, 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 I want to ask a question particularly uh, we talk about blue monday but if you're in a country where the weather's pretty good mm. 340 days of the year mm. do you still suffer a blue monday Interesting. Because um, trying to get over, over the summer, I tried to get a hold of some lawyers in France and or Spain or Italy. It's <laughs> impossible. They're off the whole of August. Well, if I may say to that <laughs> point, I'm the opposite if of you're that. I don't like the summer, <laughs> which is probably because I grew up in the cold and the rain. So, uh, I mean, if maybe it's I the opposite too, of the that. Summer. For some well, well, you can do it. You can make sorts. a fortune uh, yeah. in, in, in uh, sort of Europe over the it's summer. It's really interesting. Well, do you know what? In January, if you're in Australia, happy days. Mm. <laughs> I always say I was born in February I was born on the wrong side of the world I grew up in the northeast mm. very cold mm. grey and cold yeah. in the winter but I love the sun I, d I need the sun I definitely get a bit of that seasonal oh, <laughs> adjustment disorder see. but when you look at research though because I get a bit obsessed with the weather and there's some really interesting research around actually our perceptions of if we live in a place where there's better weather that will be happier and then when they do the, the actual research on the reality mm. you adjust so actually there's not really anything is that, that just, just your norm then, is it? You know, that's yeah, sort of what I mean, you're you used might. to then, isn't it? Again, I mean, I'm not an expert on mm. this. I'm sure in some areas and where you've got, you know, where it's dark for months on end, mm. that's going to be challenging. But overall, I think the emphasis, our perception is is sort of greater than the reality of when you're actually yeah. living there. Well, the, the weather's <laughs> an interesting one because most uh, lawyers, particularly in the magic circle, don't get to experience it because they're in the <laughs> office the whole time. But but this is, is this, uh, like the law, law firms generally, the profession, is it something where there are special or particular concerns? It's a, that's a really good question. Actually, it's quite close to my heart. I've just recently finished um, a master's in occupational and business psychology, and I focused my, my um, dissertation on well-being in the legal sector. It's not just and a coincidence that you're here. Well, exactly. <laughs> um, and looking at, and it sounds very simple, but it's obviously very complex. So looking at it on a sort of different levels in terms of what facilitates well-being in a workplace, what resources can you draw on? And I'm mm. talking about very broad resources that might include your own coping strategies, or it might include your manager, your colleagues, looking at it on a number of different levels. So what facilitates well-being? mental health and then what gets in the way which obviously you need to understand yeah. but looking at the legal sector I think that I mean what the research suggests and again this is suggests is that there are a number of factors really that that could be contributing to perhaps the legal sector being more mental health mental ill health being more prevalent yeah. um, 
and things around sort of perhaps personality traits and behaviours that are attracted to this mm. profession, yep. um, coupled with the nature of very high pressure, big cognitive strain. Mm coupled with the nature of it that things, you know, you're trained to be cynical, trained to be critical, um, trained to depersonalise. And what you're probably not trained for, and maybe correct me on this, mm -hmm. Lloyd, is how then to make sure that doesn't fall out into the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, and to value things like, you know, developing the resilience side, developing compassion. Another another interesting piece is around, you know, there's supposedly a high level of self-orientated perfectionism, which is something apparently that's increasing in the population. This maladaptive perfectionism where, um, of course, life isn't perfect. So mm. what you end up mm. being is very self-critical. This actually did come out in my research with some of the uh, younger lawyers in terms of the barriers being very self-critical you know mm. if you're blaming yourself mm. failure or win well the critical point um, is interesting and then you're is, isn't it because you know and i can see kevin with his notes there and everything but we <laughs> we um you know most people don't think i prepare well no well no most people when they read things don't think what is wrong with this yeah they yes. will do their piece of work and they'll think this is nice mm. i've done my piece of work when you're trained to be a lawyer, you often will spend your time thinking, what is the worst case scenario yeah. that could happen with this piece of paper? Yeah. And how do I mitigate against that? And that is a particular thought process, which I think subconsciously can seep into yeah. other things that you do. And it's not just about the piece of paper, it's yeah. about watching a film. Yeah. It's about watching mm. the TV mm. and, and, and looking for the looking, like looking for the problems, looking yeah. for the things that don't quite add up. Maybe yeah. your relationships, uh, I don't know. Yeah. And, and yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. And, uh, and it, does, it does overflow. And um, we, we'll talk briefly about the junior lawyers division who have done mm. some research into, particularly around junior lawyers, mm. mental health and, and well-being and resilience over the last few years. And, and now I've got really good statistics around this. Is it like ones that are, are, um, we can invest in and, mm. and believe? And I, I was looking at this sort of in preparation, like I say, I, I do prepare occasionally. And uh, it just, it's just absolutely incredible. The thing that shocked me was one in 15 of, of the respondents and the, of experienced suicidal thoughts yeah, mm. yeah. in the last month. Mm. Mm. Um, and you know, actually, in the population broadly, one in five. So that's obviously in looking their life, at that over the course yeah, of their yeah. lifetime. Got it. But, um, but again, it's it's a lot it's higher just, generally than we. It's just incredible, and um, and I, this this rings a bell with me. Sixty five point eight percent experience disrupted sleep as a result of work related mm. stress, and I think mm. a lot of people in this profession can relate to that. Yeah. What can law firms do? to combat it, to deal with it. I, I, I tried to prepare yeah. a list, uh, which I, I had to stop as well, because it gets mm. a little depressing. Mm. Um, we've got to account for every six minutes of our day. Um, there's a hierarchy that's there. You've got to yeah. come in at the bottom. You've got to commute. Mm. Like you were doing it all at university, yeah. so yeah. you've got experience. Yeah. A lot of people, for the first time, commuting, uh, which in itself, particularly in London, is a massive stress. Mm. Um, emails. Yeah, mm. the demands on us in immediate, res immediate response. Uh, the, just the fact that the inbox piles up and yeah. the numbers go up. Um, the stresses on. We've got to do development, business development. 
is a junior lawyer now, this is a, a greater expectation. The worry about getting a training contract, then getting a job on qualification, and then moving to the next stage and mm. throughout. And we talked right at the beginning about social media mm. yeah. and the perfection ideal. Yeah. Um, how did, I, I'm, I'm worried. Keep listening, please listen. So we're going <laughs> yeah. to we're going to hear some uh, what what we can do about it. Mm. And uh, in a, in the future, we're going to talk to uh, Law Care. Okay. Um, yeah, Elizabeth Rimmer, who's yeah. fantastic, and yeah. does a lot of work around this. So there is help on the way. Yeah. Um, just keep listening. There is help um, there. <laughs> there is help there, and there's a lot of support now, yeah. as well as awareness. Yes. What's happening at Freshfields? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And I think that for many years, um, law firms have had very good, certainly the large ones, have had very good um, healthcare support in place, but often only found out about when someone has got to that crisis point. And so obviously all of these things that you're talking about is that we need to be getting ahead of the game, looking at ways that we can actually help to change this culture, which is not gonna happen overnight, because as you'll know, it has been embedded for many, many years. Yeah. I think actually though, the, the younger generations are really helping to push this because they're not putting up with it actually. And they're looking, you know, when, we, when I talk to um, prospective um, trainees, they're looking for organizations that have got good wellbeing practices, mm. good mm. diversity practices. So they're really pushing that. They're, they're not gonna put up with it. Um, now, obviously we, we are where we are. And again, it's that chicken and egg. And so I think that combination of, you know, there was a million choices we could have made around what do we start with in terms of um, before we put the mental health first aid programme in place. We were doing some good stuff in pockets, lots of sessions on mm. how to eat better, how to sleep better. If you don't actually do it though, mm. um, that's the challenge. So yeah. I think that there, there is this gap between knowing what to do, which has been researched, and, and a lot of the research is on how to stop mental ill health, not so much on how to promote well-being. Um, and then there's this knowing piece, but actually it's a bit like I say, I, I've read about mindfulness for 20 years, mm. and I used the first 10 years by reading about it, I thought I was doing it. I've actually only been doing it by practicing it, is the only way you're going to change things mm. and some of some of the stuff it's been talked about before it's not new but it's not being done you know this whole role modeling piece there's a lot in that all of us so vicarious learning you know if my colleague goes home at this point or is working in this way or doesn't you know go on how amazing they are because they've just worked for three nights in a row yeah. and kind of sensation you know almost value some of the bad behaviors these are again some of the things that came out in that the, um, the, the focus groups I was doing, just, mm. and some good practices too, where you know, colleagues are very thoughtful and managers and leaders are very thoughtful. Mm. That side, that all makes a difference. I think you're right. Um, and what I what I'm don't see frequently, and Lloyd, you can probably add to this, is that top-down approach necessarily. You're saying it's the junior it's lawyers, it's the people at the bottom that are shifting the change. It's HR, it's, it's the, mm. the DNI side that's, that's mm. shifting it, but, have you, uh, from from your original blog mm. and, and from mm. now being a, mm. um, I was gonna say poster boy, that's probably mm. not the best phrase, yeah. but <laughs> certainly a spokesperson for, for it, yeah. um, uh, uh, around aware mm. raising awareness. Mm. Um, have you found a lot of people who are partners, senior in the profession, have also shared with you their stories and are they willing to share them more widely and actually change mm. or, or mm. change how they are around junior lawyers mm. uh, and people mm. who are keen to impress? Well, I think there's a couple of points there. I think there's the, I think first of all, you don't need to have gone through some lived experience to be an advocate for mm. this. I think some of our most powerful advocates are people who will actually openly say, look, I'm very lucky 
not to have experienced this, mm. but I want us to make sure that we get to a better place on this. And I think people shouldn't feel that they can't be the most powerful advocate for this topic just because they don't have yeah. a story in inverted commas to tell. Because I think we all relate, as do the partners, to you know, mental health is a spectrum. And mm. so everyone yeah. relates to, you know, yeah. Wanting to keep it well, and I and I think and I and I do genuinely believe that there is a lot more. I think the reason the stats come out like that for the junior lawyers is because for our generation, it's become a bit more normal to talk about yeah. it. I suspect, and I have no evidence for this, but my gut instinct is that those stats are probably replicated across the age groups yeah. through the profession. It's just what societal norms have been for you to talk about What's it. Come out. Well, and I, I, sorry, what's also I found is interesting is that of those, uh, those things, there are almost 2,000 respondents. Mm. I think only about a quarter of them were men. Yes, which well, is also yeah. incredibly interesting. Well, I think that, I mean, that's a, that's a big problem as well, isn't it? Because men struggle to talk about their health yeah. at the best of times. And I think there is a, you know, and it's not a legal point around, there's a macho thing around, you know, I'm not a a person with any sort of deficiency in my character or, mm. or physical health or mental health. So, you know, I've got to keep this front up. Um, yeah. But to Christina's I, I point around what, what, what was going on earlier in, in the firm and how we can help each other, uh, I think looking out for each other as colleagues is really, really important. And I think, I think you mentioned it earlier, Kevin, around other people can spot things in you yeah. before you can. Mm. Um, and, you know, it can be really simple things sometimes, like this person you work with who is incredible suddenly is not mm. as, their work is not as flawless and incredible as it as normally vocal. is. Yeah. They're not being as vocal, they're not asking the questions in the meeting they normally would ask. You know, they're coming in later than they normally would. And, you know, sometimes it might just be that there's, you know, there might be nothing, but sometimes you just saying to them, are you sure everything's okay? Um, so and in that genuine way. In a genuine of. way mm -hmm. and, you know, you will find very few people, I think, who don't respond well to that mm -hmm. sort of just checking that they're okay. I think that, and that's, again, a core piece of the mental health first aider programme, which again, as I say, you don't have to be a mental health first aider to just take more notice. I mean, that those are the sorts of things people tend to come away with. Um, you know, in terms of actually taking more notice of what's going on around you, having that confidence to ask in a genuine way, mm. how are things for you? Mm. Um, and not just when someone is really obviously um, in distress, but when you see any even slight changes. Yeah. I was just going to say, I know we're coming up to time, but um, on the sort of more senior side of it, the mm. next sort of phase with this, um, because I very much wanted this to be people trained up as we did across all levels, across all functions, because it's not about hierarchy. Um, but actually, you're right in the point that, that the senior team can make a real impact. Um, and so the next step is all London senior leaders are going to be trained up in mental health first aid. Yeah. All partners, a lot of partners are already trained up. Good. And that is an amazing um, commitment. And as I say, the ripple effect of what happens and the partners who have trained up already and how they've used that. I mean, that's mm. very impactful. So, mm. you know, all these things are going to take a while, but I think we're all heading in the right direction. Yeah. And Lloyd, you're the perfect example of it. It's, yes. Uh, the, the, the success that you've had uh, no, and continue to have mm. in your work. Um, and, and from speaking mm. up, uh, yeah. from making, making people learn. Um, before we go, do you have any advice uh, for people who might be 
mm. suffering something similar to what you had, or other things that just don't feel that they're them, themselves at the moment? What would you, from your own experience, well, recommend? I think you. the first step is you've got to trust to a, a talk to a trusted person and you know whether that's your, your mother, your father, your friend, colleague, talk it through with someone and I know that is a big step because you've sort of got to, to verbalize it is a really big step because it's sort of real once you speak it mm. uh, beyond these things that you hear in your head. Um, and that old adage that my granny would say about you know a problem shared is a problem halved, it really is because you know sometimes it's just somebody else having a bit more of an objective mm. view on things and being able to say, look, I, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think you do need to go and see a, someone about this or have you thought about counselling or have you thought about some therapy or, you know, and I think the other thing I would say is that we all just need to do a lot more to invest in our good mental health, I think. Mm. You know, you see all around London, pretty much in every street, there's a gym, isn't there? Yeah. For our physical health yeah. and people parade around on social media with their gym bodies and everything else but do people shout from the rooftops about looking after their heads well yeah. well i do know from following <laughs> yeah. you that uh, you you've started doing uh, yeah you mm. you started your own personal training sessions i have i have started that that was do you know what this was a real revelation for me this gym <laughs> thing because i am i'm not the most <laughs> active of people um and i thought go on i'll give it a go because we're lucky to have a gym at the office. Great, I've actually only just um, joined, inspired and by you. Yeah. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, thought, the and I thought I need the personal training because believe me, it won't go much further than putting your kit on unless someone <laughs> tells me what to do. I felt I'd done something just by having the induction, yeah. actually. And do you know what, though? <laughs> Genuinely, it helps. It is something that has really uh, been a bit of a revelation to me of the extra exercise, and there's a lot of science around there is, the. With producing the, those chemicals. Yeah, so. and the way it makes you feel. and. It's just very different to our jobs as well. We don't do anything very physical, you know. We're not picking bricks up and moving stuff along a production line. We sit at a desk, type in. So to go and do something completely mm. different, I think, is really useful. Um, I never thought I'd end up a fitness advocate by the <laughs> end of all of this. Yeah, well, it's that poster boy body that you're chasing yeah. after now. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much. Uh, it, it, uh, so insightful. Mm. And, and thank you for sharing those experiences with us, uh, as both of you. Mm. And um, keep it up. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. The Hearing. As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.